0: Never mind your robin red breasts and your crocuses. The first sign that spring is on the way, Baseball HQ Radio is back. Here's the pitch by Downing. Swinging. There's a drive into left center field. That ball is going to be out of here. It's gone. It's 7 15. There's a new home red champion of all time, and it's Henry Aaron.
1: The fire. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host, from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt.
0: And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, January 23rd. It's show number one of the 2015 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great show for you with regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols and from the American League with guest reporter Todd Zola, pinch hitting for Jock Thompson who lost his internet connection just before we were supposed to do his American League Beat report. Todd will also be doing double duty with his regular talk with Todd, discussing his unusual picks. At the FSTA draft. We'll also have the minor league minute with analyst Rob Gordon discussing Dodgers outfield prospect Jock Peterson. And in Master Notes, Ron Chandler talks about why not to take a pitcher in the first round, not even Clayton Kershaw. It's another Big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We gotta talk some baseball. And to start our show, as always, it's the National League Report. And once again, our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio.
2: Thanks a lot, Patrick. Always good to be here.
0: Of course there's been a lot of action in the offseason more than in uh, some offseasons past so plenty to talk about in the National League and of course I think the biggest story has to be Max Scherzer signing with the Washington Nationals he gets 210 million dollars over 7 years although apparently half of it is deferred over a further 7 years but that doesn't matter let's start with what does this move mean for Max Scherzer as a fantasy guy
2: Well you know Max Scherzer was was looking like a good guy in the AL and now moving to the National League and moving to a a pitcher's park essentially uh it looks real good for Max Scherzer. I mean, we're projecting an ERA of under three, 2.97, uh, 19 wins, and he could easily eclipse both of those numbers, I would think, uh, in this, in the current situation. So, and you know he's going to get a ton of strikeouts. I mean, here's a guy with a, with a Dom, uh, above, above 10, uh, excellent control. So the strikeouts are going to come in bunches. Uh, this means good things for Max Scherzer's fantasy value. He looked good in the American League. He probably looks even better in the National League.
0: Yeah, every ninth uh every ninth batting slot's going to be a weaker hitter than a DH that's for sure. So that he, right away he's probably going to get a small uptick in uh, in his strikeout count just by being able to strike out lots of pitchers. Uh how confident are you Nick though about this uh, 297 ERA prediction? Uh, last year 315, 2 years ago 374. And that 2013 290 mark, which was his Cy Young winning year, that was a pretty low hit rate that year. And uh, when it bounces back up to 30 some percent, as we'd expect, it seems to go right back up over three. So are you real comfortable with that 297?
2: No, I, mean, I wouldn't be extremely comfortable with it. But I think, you know, even last year when it when we, we the hit rate bounced back up to, uh, to 33 percent, the ERA was at 3.15. So, And I think we can count on on an ERA under 3.2 probably, uh, from him. And with a little luck, it could easily go below, go below three. I, you know, he's not going to be, I don't think he's going to be Clayton Kershaw, but certainly we expect him to be one of the top pitchers, I think, in the National League.
0: Yeah, I think I, I would set some, somewhere around the 3 to 320 mark for an ERA and uh, a fairly substantial number of innings. That's, that's one of the things that every, you should really look at when you're choosing your starting pitchers. Uh, he looks like a pretty certain to be sort of 210, 220 innings pitched. And that's what you want from your uh, low ERA guys because all those lo- uh, scoring free innings piling up really helps your team ERA. Right, very definitely. And we should note that the Nationals Park is one of the toughest in baseball for home runs. Comerica Park was actually even a bit favorable for left-handed hitters for hitting home runs. Now Scherzer's never been a home run guy, but it still might help him a bit in the ERA as well. Uh, Of course, this signing of Max Scherzer also has kind of a carry-on effect or a cascade effect for the whole Nationals rotation. What do you think the fallout is with the Max Scherzer signing for the whole pitching situation in Washington?
2: Well, at the, at this point, at this point, certainly, uh, Washington has six outstanding starters. I mean, they have an absolutely fearsome rotation, uh, and they've even got a good backup should somebody go down. I mean, Tanner Rourke probably becomes the the sixth starter, and and that's uh, uh, that's that's amazing. But the other thing that that we've got to think about between now and the start of the season is when you when you've got that much depth and that much strength, uh, they could certainly trade from that strength. There have been. Uh, Talk about Jordan Zimmerman perhaps being traded. He's got one year to left on his contract. But the other possibility that that is surfaced certainly is that Steven Strasburg could be traded. Uh, and, you, and you think about what kind of offensive piece would the Nationals need uh, and what would someone like Strasburg bring on the trade market. So there's certainly uh the the uh, Washington uh, GM and front office is going to have a lot of fun, I think, pursuing trade possibilities. And it'll be interesting to see what, if anything, they come up with.
0: It will. Uh, the early rumors, of course, were Jordan Zimmerman would be on the way out as he's a free agent at the end of the year. But uh, some of the analysis of that possibility suggests that, yeah, you're not going to get that much for Jordan Zimmerman because he's a free agent coming up. And if you want to get a certainly a major league level player in exchange, you're not going to get it for a, for a short rental. A, a, in all likelihood, but Steven Strasburg could bring a pile. Yeah, it sure could. Another big name trade saw the Angels sending veteran second baseman Howie Kendrick across town to the LA Dodgers. And I have to say, Nick, it's a big name. Howie Kendrick's a well-established player, a really good fantasy asset, almost always underpriced, but it doesn't look like it's going to have that big of an impact on him as a fantasy guy.
2: No, it shouldn't have much impact on him at all. I think you can look at him, uh, his production being about the same as, as it's always been. And uh, we're looking at a guy who's likely to get over 600 at bats and, and, uh, where he helps most in terms of numbers is runs at RBIs, uh, uh, double-digit home runs, double-digit steals, a batting average around 280, 285, somewhere in that level. So what you're looking at is a very solid fantasy asset, I think, moving to the National League. Uh, not someone who's going to tear the, uh, uh, tear the league up, but, you know, in a, in a, in an atmosphere such as we're in now where we're kind of star for offense, uh, having a guy who can contribute kind of across the board uh, and and who has a fairly, a fairly um, uh, stable floor uh, is certainly worth something.
0: He is. Uh, the Dodgers made room on the roster by uh, trading away D Gordon. Uh, were you surprised by that move?
2: No, not really. I think D. Gordon Dee Gordon had a wonderful year last year. and He's got tremendous speed. But uh, I think there's a downside to D Gordon, uh, especially in terms of ultimately in terms of batting average that uh, uh, that I'm sure the Dodgers saw as well when they went ahead and, and traded, uh, traded him away and, and brought in Kendrick.
0: Certainly looks like the uh, Dodgers intend to, to maybe go for it this year in a very big way, so they may not be done Perhaps in the offseason they're done, but I wouldn't be surprised to see them continue to deal during the year as they battle for the uh, National League West pennant and get into the playoffs. Nick, the Brewers traded pitcher Marco Estrada to Toronto and acquired in exchange first baseman Adam Lind. He's a big left-handed power bat, really effective against right-handed hitting. Tom Kephart of Baseball HQ says this is a big improvement for the Brewers, but what does it mean for Lind himself as a fantasy prospect?
2: Well, you know, Lind-, Lind is one of those guys that, interestingly enough, that we you know you look at on a fantasy roster and go, oh, isn't this guy kind of old? And what, you know, do we really want him? And here's a guy who's a really solid ball player. I mean, we're looking at projection-wise a 283 batting average, 18 home runs, 64 RBIs. He could do better than all of that, uh, especially if they uh, if they platoon him and and uh, keep him away from left-handed pitching, which he can't hit at all. So uh, I would see some uh, a power rebound from Lind at uh, that two eighty three batting average. Uh, probably about right, but uh, but last year, if you were, if you remember, he hit uh, 321. Uh, so batting average could stay somewhere in that 280 to 300 uh, level for uh, for Lind. I think he's a he's a real asset, uh, and I think the move is a good one for him. I think it's uh, he's going to get regular playing time, uh, may find a good platoon partner, uh, and and be able to stay out of the lineup against left-handed pitchers, and that would certainly help him.
0: I was going to ask you, Nick, are you at all concerned about playing time? That is the amount of at-bats he's going to get, which cuts into his counting stats based on his really horrendous uh, inability to hit left-handed pitching.
2: No, not really. I mean, you, you remember, you, you've got a, a strong side platoon guy here, and I think he's going to get 450 at-bats uh, anyway, even in a platoon situation. So uh, I'm not really concerned about that. And I think he can be productive uh, within that
0: uh, that number of at-bats. But our projection says maybe six mid sixties for RBIs, which is a, li- a little short to me of what you want, maybe from a premium quality first baseman.
2: Yeah, I would certainly say he's not a top tier first baseman, but uh, certainly a very, a very solid, uh, solid number two guy, uh, or if you could use him at a middle infield slot, uh, a very solid guy in that in that kind of situation as well.
0: Miller Park boosts left-handed home runs by almost 40%, which is going to be a nice gain over Rogers Center, which I think is plus 10% in that area. So uh, Adam Lind, I I think, could be a nice fit as a, maybe not as a first baseman, as you say, but a corner infield spot or a DH spot, definitely. Uh, Finally, Nick, the Cubs overhaul continued in this offseason. They acquired outfielder Dexter Fowler from the Astros. Uh, Fowler looks like he's going to definitely be the opening day starter in center field, and he's going to hit at the top of the Cubs order. What do you think about this, first of all, from the Dexter Fowler point of view?
2: Well, you know, Fowler's one of those guys that we that we kept uh, for a long time hoping would break out, and I think we've probably given up on that idea. Uh, he's a guy that's got uh, decent speed, uh, decent power, uh, batting average kind of around 270, somewhere in there, could get double-digit home runs, double-digit steals, uh, that sort of thing, so a fairly solid a uh, ball player, but not a, not a spectacular one. Uh, but it seems clear that he is going to be at top of the clubs, the Cubs lineup. Uh, and, uh, has a, a decent walk rate, so could score a few runs because he will get on base. Uh, and that, uh, uh projected on base percentage of 364, and that's not bad at all. So, uh, he's going to get on base. He's going to score some runs and uh, could do a little damage, uh, further down in the order as well.
0: Yeah, he's always been a really good on-base guy. In fact, 275, la- or th- sorry, 375 last year, 369 the year before that, 389 the year before that. So he knows how to draw a walk, and getting on base in front of what could be a pretty potent lineup, The the something that oftentimes people forget to talk about, Nick, is the potential to score a lot of runs. And if uh, Dexter Fowler plays and gets, say, 500, 525 at-bats this year in Chicago, Boy, he could really pile up a lot of runs just by getting on base and you know maybe stealing second and waiting for uh, Anthony Rizzo or, or Baez or or one of the uh, new guys coming up uh, to to push him around. There's a sneaky hidden potential here.
2: Yeah, very definitely a sneaky potential in the runs category, most certainly, especially as we talk about him being the Cubs' leadoff hitter.
0: We mentioned how Max Scherzer affects the Nationals pitching and pushes everybody down a slot and creates some issues for them as far as who goes where. And I think the same thing is probably even more true for the Cubs, with this acquisition of Fowler, he looks like he goes to center field. That means Alcantara has to move somewhere. How does uh, and and so on and so forth, and people getting pushed around all over the place. What's going to happen with the overall Cubs roster?
2: Yeah, I mean th- this 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 move clearly shakes up some spots in the Cubs roster. Uh, Louis Valbuna is gone as a part of this tr- of the deal. That seems to open up third base for Chris Bryant. Uh, certainly, he's going to have to prove himself during this during spring training. But the path to playing time for the uh, for the number one prospect is, is certainly there at this point. The other thing that, that it affects in terms of uh, there's going to be a real battle uh, in the Cubs camp at second base. You've got, uh, as you said, Alcantara was uh, was, playing, was scheduled for center field. He's not going to be there anymore because there's Fowler. So Alcantara moves back to uh, compete for the second base spot, uh, along probably with Javier Baez and, uh, and Tommy Lastella. So a real battle, I think, in the camp for who's going to be the second base starter and there's certainly a possibility now that Baez could go back to the minors for a while. Uh, Baez has, as we know, tremendous potential, but at this point is striking out so much that uh, uh, that uh, he certainly needs a little more time to figure out uh, uh, the ability to swing as hard as he does, but make contact with the ball more often than he does.
0: All right, Nick, thanks very much for talking with us. Uh, first show of the year, and we're looking forward to another great season at Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitching analyst at BaseballHQ.com and our National League beat reporter here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn to the American League. And with our regular beat reporter, Jock Thompson, having phone and internet issues, we turn to Todd Zola, a contributor to BaseballHQ.com, as well as Masters Ball, ESPN, KFFL, and other sites. Todd, welcome back to the show, and thanks for pinch hitting.
3: My pleasure. It's been a while since a pinch hitter. I'm usually a bench warmer.
0: Yeah, me too. Yeah. Uh, we're going to be talking about the American League, of course. I just got off the uh, line with Harold Nichols talking about some moves that were made in the National League. Uh, let me ask you, in a very busy offseason, which move do you think is going to have the most
3: impact on this year's fantasy baseball environment? I think in the American League, the biggest move could be Henry Ramirez to the, uh, to the Boston Red Sox. As a shortstop eligible playing left field, the key Is always with well there's two keys with Hanley there's health and if you believe in the head games and the motivation you know a a healthy and, and happy Hanley is a productive Hanley and there's a lot of stories out here in Boston about David Ortiz mentoring Hanley Ramirez even since Hanley left the organization there was a an incident where Hanley didn't hustle a ball out or didn't didn't fetch an overthrow very quickly and, you know, lackadaisical, and, and and Ortiz was apparently texting him after the game, uh, apologize, talk to the team, you know, don't do that again, and this is when he was a Marlin, and Ortiz is, of course, with the Red Sox, so this, you know, if you believe in that sort of thing, and I know we're into the numbers, but I think these are still people, and uh, if Ortiz can get in his head, I think, uh, you know, I think Hanley could be a very, very productive player in the American League, and that it just with the Red Sox lineup in general being so potent, I think that could be a very key move. In
0: the past, Henry Ramirez has rung up near 30 and over 30 home run numbers. He was 24 homers, 106 RBIs in 2009. What do you think the chances are that he can recover to that level or what level would you put him at?
3: I don't know if I'd go to that level just because I think, you know, offense being down in general, Uh, The Red Sox policy with running if you if you have a high success rate, you're going to run. I don't think we're going to see him running a lot. I don't think he's going to be stationary, but I wouldn't expect anything more than, you know, high single digit to low double digits. I think you know, in the 20s and homers is, is possible, but I think as with the, a lot of the Red Sox. I don't know, other than Ortiz, I don't know that we're going to see a ton of homers, but I think we're just going to see a lot of doubles and, and high batting averages and runs and runs scored and RBIs and that sort of thing.
0: Well, certainly the Red Sox were not sitting on their hands after making the Hanley Ramirez deal. They also signed Pablo Sandoval. How does he look in a Red Sox uniform for fantasy purposes?
3: Well, uh, the the uniform doesn't make him look any thinner, unfortunately. But uh, I think similar to Hanley, he, I think he's going to be very productive, and he'll be peppering the wall. Now he's a switch hitter, so if he if he happens to hit balls down either line, you know he could get a few homers that way. But I don't know that we're going to see you know a huge jump in power. One of the sort of latent secrets is Fenway, while it's a hitter's park because of the short wall and a, and a lot of outs turn into doubles. Uh, it, it, Keeps homers in the park, both to right field and to left field. So, you know, they may have homer. You know, Ortiz can hit a ball out of any park. I'm not worried about that. But a guy like, you know, Pablo, I'm seeing more doubles off the wall, gap hitters into right field. With that You know, triples for other people, a double for him. And, you know, so I, I like his batting average. I think – I don't think you can ever – you know, call a 320 average, and I think that's an upside sort of thing. You know, I'm expecting more of a 290 to 300. But if he has one of those years where his Babip goes nuts because of the wall, it wouldn't shock me at all. Yeah, he could be banging them all, those line drives off the wall indeed and push his, uh,
0: we call it hit rate at Baseball HQ, but uh, batting average on balls and play goes up to you know 360 32%, from 32%, which is more of the norm for him. He could really have a, a decent batting average year. As it is, I think 300 is a fair bet. But
3: what do you think for a peak on home runs? Still teens. I mean, he's going to turn on a couple. I mean, Right field is deep, but if he, you know, he pulls one down the line, Pesky pole. still, uh, well, it's disputed how far away it is, but it's around 300 feet away. And he's more of a line drive hitter than he is uh, a fly ball hitter. But, you know, hopefully it won't get in his head. You know, getting it, you hear stories about guys getting in batting practice and they think the wall's going to fall down on top of them and it gets in their head and they change their swing. Hopefully Pablo won't do that. But... Mid-teens homers, but a, a ton of doubles and runs in RBIs. He could be you know, in the neighborhood of 90 for each, depending upon the batting order and where he's hitting and that sort of thing.
0: The uh, Red Sox also short up their pitching, and they seem to be going very heavily towards ground ballers uh, with Wade Miley going in and Rick Porcello. What do you think of those two guys uh, fitting into the Boston rotation and as fantasy prospects?
3: Interesting. If you're going to talk, if you're going to loop them as ground ballers, you got to co- include Justin Masterson in there as well. Right. Although I think Porcello and Miley, I prefer them from a fantasy sense over Masterson. He's more of a wild card. The team has come out and said, and this has to do with Pablo from the hitting aspect. The team has come out and said that umpires are calling lower strikes, so they are designing a team to take advantage of that. They're designing a team of, of pitchers that throw low. Ryan Hannigan, their catcher, is one of the better framers in the league, and will can catch these guys. Sandoval's a low ball hitter, which is one of the reasons they w- were willing to pay to get him and maybe pay a little bit more in a little more years. Now, of course, they can come out with an edict and raise the strike zone up, and, and, and who knows what will happen at that point. But, you know, the Red Sox have had a history of success in this area. So I, I like the idea that they're thinking outside the box. I like that idea in fantasy as well. I don't know that I'm willing to over-invest in a Porcello in a Miley uh, to chase that you know strategy that the Red Sox are employing. In an AL-only league, I might be more inclined because they will give innings. In a mixed league, because it is Fenway Park, I'm still a little hesitant to use my middling pitcher's in a hitter's ballpark in the American League, if they're streaming in my mixed leagues, but in an AL only league, they're going to get innings. They're not going to get a ton of Ks, but you don't need a ton of Ks because you'll get Ks elsewhere. So to me, they're more American League only pitchers, and this is the American League market watch, so I guess that makes sense.
0: We mentioned Rick Porcello coming to Boston. That was a trade with the Tigers, and Boston sends Joanna Cespedes to Detroit. Uh, Todd. First of all, what do you think of the of Cespedes in Detroit? To me, it looks like a bad deal for his offense given the park differences. But also, what do you make of the fact that two pretty smart organizations have now told Yowena's uh, to hit the bricks?
3: Yeah, I'm not sure about that. We like to read into that, and you know, I I guess you know, if I'm going to play, you know, the head games with Hanley, I suppose I should do it with Cespedes as well. Can't pick and choose. It could just be a matter of of. Well, I think Oakland was sort of. Well known that they signed him with the possibility of flipping him, so I don't know that that's a huge deal as far as that concerned. And then Boston, I think he was a nice fit in Boston with that wall. I don't know if he would hit him over, but he certainly would have put many, many dents in that wall had he stayed in town in Boston for the, uh, for the season. I like him in that lineup. Now, the park, if you're comparing the park to Boston, it's a downgrade. But if you're comparing it to Oakland, it's an upgrade. So, you know, I think you, you may call it a wash. Or, you know, it's almost as if he wasn't even with the Red Sox when you think about it because the team wasn't doing very well at the time. And, and you know, years to come, people are going, oh, yeah, he was with the Red Sox. I forgot. Hopefully, anyway, if he plays well. I like the lineup more than than necessarily the park. Well, the park isn't quite as bad as as perceived. Um you know, again with the whole counting stat thing, I'm liking guys in the top of an order that, a top of a potent order, and Cespedes gets that. So I actually I I picked him up in a couple leagues already, and you know I'm not expecting a huge breakout. I'm just leap of faith that there's no head games going on that he can stay healthy and that he can be a you know 20-25 home run hitter and, again, getting a ton of runs and RBIs in a very potent lineup.
0: Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, talking with Todd Zola on the American League Market Watch segment to open our year. Uh, Jock Thompson, our regular beat reporter for the American League, had internet trouble, couldn't get connected, and that's really important in today's baseball uh, analytics world. Uh, Todd, the uh, Chicago White Sox were very busy and by many accounts were the most successful off-season team in making moves that helped their team. Let's start on offense. Melky Cabrera signs as a free agent, and how do you think Melky Cabrera is going to look in that uh, bandbox ballpark they they use?
3: Well, you said it; it's the bandbox, and I think that's a perfect fit for Melky. The other the other aspect of it, it's grass, and you know he was well well he said he didn't mind the turf, but you know it, you know when you read between the lines he didn't like the turf, and I don't blame him. Uh, so that as much as moving to a bandbox, I don't necessarily think he's gonna hit into the 20s in homers. Uh, he, those days are gone, but a uh, high teens with a steal here and there, and I think he's another 300 batting average possibility, depending upon where he hits in that lineup, because there's a lot of potential, you know, different moving places as far as that goes. He could be up to second and, and score a ton of runs, or he could hit sixth and, and knock in a few more, but. He's a guy that I like, especially because the shine is off of a bit. And I don't know if trading to or moving to Chicago will up the shine at all. But I, I I'm liking him a lot in AL only, just because of the the at bats and the counting stats and the uh, nice nice batting average buffer. I just we don't want batting average, but I think he's going to get not we don't want it we don't focus on it, but I think it's going to be a bonus to some nice counting stats.
0: Yeah, he's one of those kind of rare birds that is going to provide you with some value across the piece and possibly quite a lot of value in batting average. If he does manage to hit 300, he's going to be a relatively rare bird in that regard. And he's going to do it in a ton of at-bats. So there's going to be a lot of hits, which helps your overall team batting average as well. Um, I even like Melky Cabrera actually in a mixed league. I, I'm going to be very surprised if he doesn't go in tout mixed this year. Uh, the White Sox picked up Jeff Samarja. We mentioned uh, Oakland making all these changes year after year. Samarja left as a free agent, White Sox pick him up. Tough park for a pitcher.
3: Yeah, now Samarja's interesting in that when you, you know you have a draft list, you might have a dollar value, you might have a ranking. You sort of have to know where Samarja's value, I don't like the word value. We, we may talk about that later or have, you know, but I don't like the word value so much. I like the word potential and it's with strikeouts so you almost draft him for needs as opposed to uh, by his rank to me that lessens the park a bit because you're sort of expecting ratios might not be as stellar as a as a stud so at least when i'm drafting samarja i'm building a staff and i need strikeouts or i'm planning on getting my strikeouts from samarja and i'll and i'll take a lesser strikeout pitcher down the line that might that might have better ratios. So the park is a factor, but it's not a killer for me. Um, I'm okay. He's a ground ball pitcher, so I'm okay with taking him and just, you know, as a guy that I'm never going to, you know, he's going to be in my lineup no matter what. So even if it's in Chicago, he's not coming out of, you know, he's one of my top three or four starting pitchers. And I might actually be higher on him because I don't think enough people build a staff according to needs i think they build it according to blind rankings and that can be a mistake just as far as balance and and what you need to win each category of course at baseballhq.com Todd and and I know you follow
0: this precept as well. You got to look at the skills and uh, Jeff Samarja has been improving pretty much across the board. His ground ball percentage last year hit 50% for the first time and to me that's a really interesting thing because it really uh, reduces the home run risk of playing in the small park. If they're if they're ha- hammering 50% of the balls into the ground and then plus all those strikeouts, there's just not that many fly balls out there to become home runs against him
3: and his walk rates dropping which means if he does give up a home run it's more likely to be a one or two runner as opposed to those killer you know three runs or grand slams
0: excellent point yeah and a lot of innings gotta like a guy who delivers you a lot of good quality innings 299 era last year 107 whip which was way down partly the result i think of hit rate but uh, also the result of a guy who's getting more solid in his skills and getting more experience In the game, Uh, David Robertson, the Yankees closer, moved to Chicago as well. I was a bit surprised that they would bother spending all that money on a closer, considering they still did have uh, some some issues. But David Robertson will be closing for the White Sox. Uh, Does changing teams matter that much for a closer?
3: No. Well, yes, but not in his case. I mean, when you're going from the Yankees, you can use the anecdotal. If you can do it in Yankee Stadium, you can do it anywhere. You know as far as mentality goes then you can just use the parks and they're pretty comparable as far as parks go they don't matter as much for closers but it, it still does matter um i i think i am actually i'm not surprised their bullpen was a train wreck last year and they're in go for it mode so I, i'm not at all surprised that they went after uh, a top closer i mean maybe at the time we weren't exactly sure that this is what they were going to do but now that they're in full all-in mode i, I think it's actually a good idea I did some research for
0: BaseballHQ.com last season uh, trying to figure out the answer to the question, are you better off with a closer on a bad team because there's more close games or a good team because there's more wins in general? And the answer turned out to be, really, you are better off with the good team that's going to win a lot of games. And Chicago has the look of a team that might win a lot of games. And from that point of view, I think they might actually... Um, outwin the Yankees and in that case David Robertson has landed himself in a pretty good spot. Uh, The team in the offseason Todd that really made the most headlines with all the moves they were making was Oakland and uh, (laughs) in a lot of instances because people couldn't understand what was going on but let's talk about first they trade Josh Donaldson away to Toronto and get Brett Laurie back so talk briefly about uh, Josh Donaldson and Brett
3: Laurie in their new homes. I love Donaldson. Uh, we have talked a little bit about lineup and counting stats and ballpark factor. That all is part of Donaldson as well. I'm um, the batting average. Uh, I'm not. I don't really. I'm not expecting a huge batting average. I wouldn't be surprised if there's a bit of a drop. But I think he fits into the philosophy of Toronto, where you know they. they I don't want to say they look for the long ball, but you know would certainly have some power hitters there. They don't mind the strikeout as much, although they're, they're, some of their better hitters are, are becoming better contact hitters as well. But I think he fits in perfectly. Uh, now, is he going to get hurt by the turf? Is he going to play fewer games? I don't know. Uh, playing third base, is you, you take a pretty good pounding over there, uh, as we'll talk about with Brett Lowry in a second. So I guess I'm a little bit concerned as far as that goes. Uh, is he going to be as durable? I'm not sure. Uh, but I'd like, when he's in the lineup, uh, Toronto's going to be putting a lot of crooked numbers on the board and I think he's going to be right in the middle of that. How about Lori as an Oakland A? Again, I think the key there is health. I think getting off that turf and getting onto the softer grass could be just what the doctor ordered. Uh, when we talk about you know potential, I don't think the cost to get Lori is going to be that high. There's a there's a chance, I don't want to call it a breakout, but there's a chance of an improvement in skills and the cost might not be so high because they're going to look at the ballpark and maybe the lineup around him and, and the injury proneness. I think in an AL only, he's the kind of guy that you, you pay for 350 to 400 bats and you get 500, and that's all it takes in, in an AL only sort of league to uh, to get a nice big edge. Mixed leagues, I'm not quite as warm and fuzzy about it uh, just because the third base is going to be so hard to uh, replace if he does happen to get hurt or, or not right. do as well. I'm more concerned about not him doing as well because there's more of a buffer as far as performance goes in AL. But I'll, I uh, I would suspect that I will have a couple of shares of Brett Laurie on some AL teams. Ben Zobrist goes to Oakland, a multi positional player. Zobrist is one of those guys that you're not exactly sure what you're going to get. You know, you're going to sort of like with Melky. Uh, batting average is more consistent with Melky, but y- you don't know what you're going to get with Ben Zobrist. But at the end of the year, it's going to be something, it's going to be something to help you somewhere. Now, I think the only issue as far as Zobrist goes, and I don't really think this is an issue that much, is we're not exactly sure if he's going to be moving around like he did in Tampa. Oakland loves the platoon, they love the matchup, but I'm not so sure that Zobrist isn't going to, you know, find one spot and play there. Unfortunately, right now, is we don't know that spot because you know, just as Billy Bean makes a move and you you know, we all do our playing time and figure out what they're gonna do. Well he makes another move and we're gonna switch it around again. Where's Semyon gonna? Semian's gone from starter to reserve back to starter again. Do they trust Eric Sogard? Can Zobrist play the outfield? Is Sam Fold gonna get a bigger role? So Zobrist is gonna play. I don't know if next year we're gonna be talking about multiple eligibility Zobris. That's my only concern. But for this year he'll have it, so
0: that's something uh... Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh Billy Butler, a designated hitter from Kansas City, moves to Oakland as well. This is a move that had a lot of people scratching their heads. Can Billy Butler rebound and become that sort of mid twenties home run hitter ninety r b i guy in Oakland, or is this a, a some kind of pipe dream
3: unless they change his approach, it's not the park with i mean with you know Kansas City and Oakland are both you know not very good home run parks, but it doesn't matter if you're hitting the ball on the ground you're not going to hit the ball out of cores. Doesn't matter, you know. Ground balls don't go over the fence. So that's my concern with Butler is, are are they going to play with his approach or do they just want him to, you know, keep on keeping on and 15 homers and, you know, middle of an order kind of guy hitting 290 and driving in a bunch of runs. Concern with Butler a little bit is, again, they play the matchups and he's a right-handed hitter. Now they've already sort of said that he'll be Ike Davis's platoon partner at first base. So he's going to be getting those the, the handedness advantage there, how much is he going to DH? How much? I don't know that he's going to be the last year he, he missed some games, so he wasn't the full-timer that he had been in years past, but I don't know that he's going to return to the you know 650 plate appearance guy that he was, uh, again, an accumulator. He didn't hit homers, but he got runs in RBIs because he played so many games. That's my concern with Butler is, Will he reach that 155 games, or is he going to be in the 140s, even if he's healthy? And finally, Oakland also added Tyler Clippard to what looked like an
0: already pretty stacked bullpen. Maybe that's part of their strategy. How do you like Tyler Clippard?
3: I think he's the same guy. I think there's, there's some people that are just so desperate for saves. They're, they're more hoping than thinking that he's going to be the closer. I know Doolittle's do a lefty, but when he's on, you know, he can get anybody out. Uh, I see Clippard staying in the same role. There's a bit of a question as to how many innings he'll go. Although Washington, the past couple years, has has reduced the number of innings they've thrown. I mean, he used to be a 90-inning reliever, which was which was unheard of. Uh, so you know, he used to really you know pump up the strikeouts and those great ratios. He was even more helpful, you know, than a 60 or 70-inning reliever. I don't think Oakland will press him too much because, like you mentioned, they do have a strong bullpen. I do see some possibilities of matchup saves, so he's on the top of my setup man list because I do think there will be times when they'll either you know play matchup or leave him in for the extra inning, or when Doodle's gone two games, Clipper'll be the third. So I can see five to seven saves, even without Doodle getting hurt, but I don't see him taking the role from the from spring training.
0: No, nor do I, but I think he's probably pretty good for five saves and probably good for five, six wins as well because of that he'll be he'll be put into those high-leverage situations.
3: Oh, absolutely. And, and, and if you're in a holds league and a lot more holds leagues, he's always amongst the leaders in holds. Before I let you go, Todd, a uh,
0: couple of quick hitters. I wanted to get your opinion on Nelson Cruz moving to Seattle.
3: I think with Cruz, it's more injury health than it is with performance. He's going to hit the ball out of any park when he hits it. Are we going to see that same, you know, is he going to stay on the field? Was that, was it just, you know, happenstance of last year that things came together? And I can't believe that he's going to. And I'm not even talking about anything that happened in the past. That's just, I, I don't see, you know, Cruz, even if he's dh he's going to pull something running the first. I, I just don't see him staying healthy out there in Seattle like he did in Baltimore.
0: Russ Martin goes to Toronto. He's a pretty good defensive catcher. Had a career offensive year last year. How do you like Russ Martin in a Blue Jay uni?
3: Yeah, if you those of us that do objective projections and use park factors, we just we sort of had to close our eyes and change that because going from Pittsburgh to Toronto, Martin wasn't going to hit twenty six homers like some of us may have thought based upon pure park factor. I like the move again because of the. Uh, the park and the and the, and the team, the lineup, I think he's going to be a productive catcher. And he has improved defensively. Um, Navarro was a nice little pickup last year. I think Martin's going to cost more than Navarro. But he's definitely, if you don't want to get to the end game of catchers, you know, Martin's definitely in your radar. All right, Todd, uh,
0: thanks very much for doing this. Pinch hitting for jock. Uh, really appreciate you taking that time. Uh, we're going to have you right back here in a second, so go grab yourself a lozenge,
3: yeah.
0: uh, <laughs> get a drink of water, and we'll come right back and talk to you about your FSTA draft, which raised a lot of eyebrows and caused a lot of chins to wag, and I'm very curious to, to hear what your thinking was. When we come back with Todd Zola, this is Baseball HQ Radio.
3: Take me out to the ball game. Take me Me out with the crowd
0: Buy me some peanuts and Cracker Jack
1: I don't care if I never get back Let me root, root, root for the home team If they don't win it's
3: a shame For it's one, two, three strikes You're out at the old ball game Yes, it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball
1: game. Baseball HQ Radio. (coughs)
0: Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio, the first show of 2015 fantasy baseball season. We just finished a very interesting and informative discussion of American League offseason moves with Todd Zola, and now Todd's back, and we're going to talk about his somewhat unusual approach to the FSTA draft, which was held a little while ago. Uh, Todd, you are partnered with Laura Michaels of MastersBall.com, and you wrote about this, and you said you had a three-part strategy going in. Give us the overview of the three parts.
3: Uh, it wasn't so much three strategies we always just dis- we discuss three aspects of the draft before we go in and we sort of talk about what we're going to do as far as pitching do we want to attack it early do we want to wait how do we want to go about pitching we talk about sort of a general overall strategy to maybe for whatever reason we want to try something or we always end up just putting you know let's just play it straight and and go for balance although this year we did opt to, and I mentioned in the AL segment, not worry as much about batting average and really focus on those counting stats. And because all you can really discuss is your first-round pick, because you really don't know what's going to happen after that, we try to narrow down a list for our first-rounder just so we're not sitting there, you know, with our thumbs twiddling, trying to figure out who we want. You should know your first-rounder pretty quickly. And we also like to... Go through names that we both happen to like for whatever reason. Uh, when you when you team when you partner, you know there has to be some give and take. The more players that you both mutually agree on, the less give and take there needs to be because there isn't any. You know you both agree. So we like to get a list of players that we both like and sort of I don't know if it's a reverse engineer work backwards, but figure out around where we're going to get them and make sure that we have the available spots to do that so we can get the guys that we both like.
0: You said in the article that you wrote about the uh, FSTA draft, Todd, you don't like the term value, and you mentioned that just a moment ago when we were talking about the American League. You prefer the word potential. Could you explain
3: uh, what you mean by that and why you think it matters? I have to to give credit where credit is due. This was sort of stuck into my head by a, a fellow high stakes player in the nfbc dan kenyon who sort of joked about it but i i don't know if they took it to the next level but i have i do have a platform to talk about it so i guess i am taking it to the next level to me i don't know it's just a buzzword value to me is past tense we don't know if if a player is a value pick we just know it hasn't happened yet so if it hasn't happened yet it to me it's potential and if it is it just a a gimmick of mine to 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 have a platform to a crusade to talk about, maybe. But what I do think it does is using the word potential, it, it opens your mind up to it's not a static number. There's lots of different things that can happen with the player, good and bad. There's risk involved. Does it free
0: you up in any way to when you get rid of the term value, which has monetary connotations, if you if you call it potential, that seems to broaden out the available ways you can look at a guy and so if you were of a mind and we're going to talk about this later to take a player perhaps where a lot of people wouldn't and perhaps even where your own projections don't show him but because you see some kind of potential there does it free you to do that in a
3: way that you might not if you were locked in on this value concept exactly that's exactly what it does is it helps you feed in it feeds into a a strategy into a plan more it, if if you feel in order to make your plan work that you have, you have to give back value, I'd rather think about it as I'm gaining potential than giving back value.
0: Let's use an example of your actual draft
3: at the FSTA.
0: Todd, you surprised a lot of people picking in your first round number seven Uh, By taking Anthony Rizzo of the Cubs, even though your own projected value, to use that term, had him somewhere down around, I think, 17 on your list. You knew that uh, the first six picks were going to be Trout, McCutcheon, Goldschmidt, Stanton, Abreu, and Kershaw in some order, and you turned out to be exactly right about that. And that left you looking at guys like Carlos Gomez. You could have had Miguel Cabrera. Playing a bit of a comeback bet. Adam Jones is a pretty uh, solid bet as a as a first rounder. Edwin N. Carnassian, a lot of people like him. And you had Rizzo on that list. Why Rizzo? Why did you take Rizzo when you could have had somebody else? And maybe you could have got Rizzo on the coming back.
3: We'll hold that thought about the coming back because that's sort of another key sort of general draft strategy that I that I have at this point. Okay. Um, when Lara and I talked, it turned out that a lot of the mutually attractive players were were outfielders and not only that they were outfielders with speed so that kind of crossed off Carlos Gomez the opportunity cost of of taking a speedy outfielder when we felt we could get several later that we both happen to like AJ Pollock and Dalton Pompey and Rosny Castillo uh, just, just to name it, Christian Yelich was on the list, Cole Calhoun although he might not run George Springer, we both really, really liked and knock on what he will run. So at that point, it was more of an opportunity cost. Uh, the only, the, my list to be a little, little bit nerdy about it is has set several catchers on it because of the way I feel the catcher value bump as far as replacement level is this year. And if you take out the catchers and take out the pitchers, Rizzo is 10th or 11th on the list. I don't remember exactly where. Uh, and the other thing about it is, uh, I think we may want to talk about this in the future. In the future session, if I if you make the outfielders that are first base and outfield eligible, if you make them to be first base, and you make or you make them to be eligible, and you force positions in your valuation, it, it changes the rankings a, li- a buck or two. But a you know, buck or two might be the difference between 17th and 14th. So, I think that was also a factor. Is in the back of my mind, I knew that if you know I can I could I don't use the word fudge because that makes it sound. Like it's not right, but if you if you do it slightly differently, and that's part of the sort of mindset of of what a valuation is, that it's not a stagnant number. Um, but we did, like you mentioned, we did pass up Miggy Cabrera. We did pass up Gomez. No matter how you slice it, I had him ranked higher. Um, the Miggy thing we talked about that previous is we that might be the that might be the bigger mistake than passing up on Gomez if if Cabrera comes back and in early April and starts to rake that might be the move that we regret more so than any on any other player that we passed on but we decided all things considered to to pass on him um, and then it was an Encarnacion and we would rather uh, bet on the come on Rizzo than the older player who might break down a little bit and even though he's in a good lineup so we went for the young Rizzo and raised a couple of eyebrows like you said then there's the theory
0: Todd and you know it probably better than anyone that says you want to try to figure out where this guy's going to be valued by your your fellow owners in that draft and you say look I want Rizzo here but I bet if I just let him slide I'll get him on the second round comeback why didn't you you know kind of try to have your cake and eat it too with get Cabrera going down get Rizzo coming back
3: Yeah that's uh it's an interesting question and there are a couple different ways to approach it the first being the you know, ADP, we're talking about, you know, look at the ADP and find out when you could get him. Well, first of all, I don't know that there is an ADP out there right now that's sort of trustworthy for this particular draft. The only one that's really out there is the NFBC 15 Team Draft Championship uh, ADP, which uh, it ranks players and it's probably close enough to get an idea. And had I looked at it, maybe I could have gotten him in the second round. But, the, here's the catch, and it's maybe a little hard to explain, is there? there's an opportunity cost with each draft pick. Who would we have then taken instead? Okay, so we push Rizzo to the second. There's someone we might want to take at that point, and we're going to miss out potentially on that player, and that player might fill a, a position or give us a uh, kind of category that we're looking for, and then we have to push it down another p- p- position. All I can control is getting a player that I feel will return what I paid for or what I invested for that particular spot.
0: When you make up your your list of where you want to get certain guys or where you want to get types of guys, do you you actually get into detail like this is where I want a a stolen base outfielder type guy in this particular slot or is it more general than that?
3: Oh, it's much more general than that and you can't focus on just one guy either. Uh, But you it do have a flow. I mean, maybe it is based upon an ADP or, or just expectations. There is an ex- expected flow, but you know, Laura and I mentioned eight or nine outfielders, seven of which had speed. We only would have had spots for four or five of them, so I knew that there would be choices. Um, so, we're not never want to pigeonhole yourself into having to take a particular type player, a particular position, or a particular stat because you're just never sure that is going to be there at your turn so you don't have to reach and give back some of the potential return on your investment just to make sure that you get that stat or that position, you know, before you're forced to just, at the end, just die for and just cross your fingers. Todd, you
0: also took Evan Gaddis in round five, and that might have caused more tweeting and general consternation than picking Rizzo at number seven. And again, your own projections said Gaddis was way below the 59th pick, which suggests or implies you could have had him in the sixth round or the seventh round. So why move him up as much as you did?
3: Well, a, a couple of reasons. First being, I think there might have been some difference in opinion of, of just expectation. This the, the the trade to Houston had just occurred from Atlanta, and I was very high on it. He was my third catcher before the trade. After the trade, well, he didn't become my second catcher, but he certainly solidified his stead as as my third catcher. As, I'm sorry, as the third catcher off the board. So what Laura and I decided was, and he fit the plan as far as counting stats go, uh, lots of home runs and in that lineup, should drive in some runs and should score. So he fit that plan as far as that goes. It's the intrinsic intrinsic potential to your roster as opposed to just, you know, value in a vacuum what the market perceives. He was the third catcher, so the agree, not so much agreement, but our, the idea was once LaCroix is drafted, let's then start, you know, we're not, let's not take him... Before Lacroix is drafted, that's sort of was our litmus test. Once Lacroix is drafted, Jonathan Lacroix, he's now in play for us, and we had him to draft him the same round that we that that Lacroix was taken in. A few picks later, we didn't push him down any rounds, uh, mainly because the concern at that point was, you know, what all it takes is one other person to see the trade to Houston and think that he's gonna, you know, like him as much as we do, and you know, he, to me, he was worthy of a second or third round pick as far as my rankings go this is the fifth i'm getting a return on my investment why push him any further? You call it
0: um, bully the hitting and manage the pitching. And as part of that uh, overall approach, you took a couple of Kansas City pitchers who are, again, well ahead of probably where most of the guys in the market would have uh, put them, Jordana Ventura and Danny Duffy, but for different reasons. Uh, give us your thinking on those two Kansas City pitchers and how they fit into your tactics.
3: Yeah, our first our first pitcher was a reliever, Mark Melanson. And our first starter was, was, was Kashner, uh, around later. Andrew Kashner. We just, you know, we weren't purposely doing it, but it just didn't work out that one of the pitchers we wanted to take, because we knew at some point we would get pitchers that we liked at the spot, and if we had to, we would do what I'm about to describe, and that's, you know, manage the pitching staff. Uh, Ventura, actually, I'm, I'm more down on Ventura than, than everybody else. Not so much down on him, but I guess a little bit, a little bit, uh, not as not as optimistic, or or, or a little more. Just I need to see it again. Uh, so where we took him was probably other people in the range where other people would have. Which is one reason why we needed to take him at that point, because we probably wouldn't have been able to get him otherwise. But Lar really likes him. I trust Lar's instinct on this sort of thing. We need the strikeouts. We didn't get an ace, so we need to draft somebody who can. Here's that word: potentially become an ace, or at least. A strong number two fantasy pitcher. Uh, Kansas City is a good park. Although, it, it inflates runs. Not a lot, not a lot, but it inflates run. It kills homers, but it does inflate runs just a tad, but it's neutral. It, you know, we can call it neutral if we want. But So it's not a bad park. Uh, but again, it was more the potential and the fact that we need to make up some ground in pitching. And this is one way to do it to take a guy that could maybe get it together, get those strikeouts, and, you know, drop the RA and become a a low-end one, high-end two from a fantasy perspective. Now, Duffy, a little different in that, again, Kansas City, Good Park, that sort of thing. Here, we weren't drafting Danny Duffy for 30 starts. We were drafting Danny Duffy for 15 home starts and... Another fable started to on the road. Of course, how the schedule goes, you know, I'm not exactly sure, but that's the idea. Is that he's going to be one of our streamers, and we like the potential that he becomes more than a streamer because that's what his pedigree says he might be. But at worst, he's a matchup guy, and that's what you have to do to manage. You're going to need to get as many of these guys in there for two starts or one really, really good start and just have a better back end of your rotation than everybody else because they're going to have a better front end than we do
0: you took josh donaldson in the second round ahead of such potential stars as hanley ramirez and uh ian desmond of washington Uh, does that mean that you just think donaldson's going to have a better counting year than those guys
3: two reasons uh actually desmond was was we talked about if we i had my you know i we kept notes because we to talk about the piece afterwards that it, it, was, it was between Donaldson and Desmond because we do like what he gives. But one of the reasons is we just, I personally don't like the third base pool that much. There's a couple of, of guys up top that I don't mind, but once you get past the top five or six, other people have different opinions on the third base pool. I just don't like it, and I am high on Donaldson. Uh, so he, he fit the plan at that point. Uh, maybe we could have waited and, 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 and taken Desmond and gone for a Kyle Seager, who Laura and I both liked. He was on our mutually liking list, as it were. But, we, again, just the, the counting stats that we wanted and knowing we were going to get speed later, Donaldson fit the plan, took care of a position, and it wasn't like a scarcity pick. He was on the list. matter of fact, I might have even had him ranked higher than Rizzo a little bit. Depending upon again which which way you do the values, do you force the value, or do you just leave it straight? And he was very close to Rizzo as far as my uh, value goes, and he just uh, he just was the right pick at the right time. At least we hope.
0: And finally, a couple of other guys in the first round. Uh, Ron Chandler of BaseballHQ.com, who will be on the show a little later with his master notes, took Jose Abreu ahead of Paul Goldschmidt, and they went in that order. Would you have taken Goldschmidt over Abreu or the other way around, or would you have taken Rizzo at number three?
3: I would not have taken Rizzo at number three. And you know what? If I were to do a draft on my own, I may have taken, if this was a different draft or i do it again, I may have taken Gomez at number seven. It was just the the plan that Lar and I happen to have, uh... You know, again, because remember, part of being a team is picking players you both like. So, therefore, those were those outfielders. You know, if I'm on my own, I probably would have taken Gomez because I would, you know, and, but that's not, you know, it's just sort of an interesting little tidbit. But um, as far as Abreu goes, interesting, Ron, I've talked about Abreu and not being all that high on him. So, you know, Ron, we have a pretty decent, you know, friendly and professional relationship. He came up to me. Before the draft, and I got a little bit of a hint that that was where he was going to go, and he just kind of wanted to know why I've been talking down on him a bit because that's who we planned on taking, and I am a little concerned about the the one year baseline. I think the power is going to be there. I am concerned about a drop in batting average. I think he can stay healthy because the injury wasn't one of those oh no we we got he's going to happen every year sort of things. So it was more you know fluke than chronic to worry about. But he just had some really weird stuff going on behind the numbers. He's He had like, such a low fly ball rate to left field, but over a 50% home run per fly ball. Now, of course, the corollary of that is he hits more fly balls to left, and he's going to hit 40 homers. But it was just a lot of weird stuff that I didn't trust the baseline. So Abreu is a little bit further down on my, on my ranking list. And Again, I I would have taken Goldschmidt at that point if I had the third pick, Um, but if it's Rizzo versus Abreu straight up, if Abreu had made it to seventh, I would have taken Rizzo over Abreu.
0: That's really interesting. And finally, Todd, um, you said that had Clayton Kershaw fallen to you at seven, he actually went, I think, fifth in the draft, you wouldn't have taken him, and um, I'm wondering was it, again, just a matter of the strategy you guys had decided on or you, do you have something against pitchers in the first round? What was the reasoning?
3: I'm not going to, you know, poo-poo anybody that does take Clayton Kershaw in the first round or even, you know, Felix Hernandez a little bit later or whatever. It You know, uh, you know by the numbers, it, it makes sense. It can be done. I just want more counting stats at that point. I trust my ability to use the Kevin Quackenbushes and, and well, I'd say Ken Giles, although there's a chance that Giles is a closer sooner than later, Brad Boxberger, and, and some of these high-strikeout middle relievers to manage your staff into a lower ERA than it might appear just by visually looking at the players because, you know, that's the other, you know, people walking out of the draft saying they're in second place, and first place. Well, whatever program they were using... It didn't know how I, I was going to manage the staff in in season. Yeah, unless if and if it did, I want that program because I don't know how I'm going to manage it yet. So I'm we just Kershaw. It's justifiable. You have less margin of error because you really need to hit on those hitters. And I trust my ability to pick out pitchers so that I don't need Clayton Kershaw at that point.
0: It was a really interesting draft. Uh, You had a lot of uh, eyebrow-raising picks, as we've talked about, and you went after your strategy without regard for what you thought the market was going to do, which is a kind of a departure from how a lot of people run these drafts, all of which made it very interesting, and then, plus, you write about it as well afterwards. A very interesting experience all the way around. So thanks for discussing with us. Thanks for pinch-hitting for jock again. And, uh, of course, you're going to be a regular guest here at Baseball HQ Radio throughout the year. All right, Todd, thanks a million. Talk to you again uh, next time we have a show or maybe the one after that. We haven't quite nailed down a schedule yet, but uh, you'll certainly be part of it. You know where to find me. I absolutely do. That's Todd Zola, contributor to BaseballHQ.com, ESPN.com. Of course, the uh, home planet is MastersBall.com. All over the place, a great guy to read and uh, certainly must reading for anybody who wants to take this game seriously. When we come back, we'll have our... Commentaries. Rob Gordon's along with the Minor League Minute and Ron Chandler, as I mentioned, with Master Notes. Stay with us. It's Baseball HQ Radio. That ball hit deep in the left center field. Wise back, back, makes the catch. What a Blade play! Wise makes the catch. What a play by Wise! Mercy! What a play by Wise! Under the circumstances, one of the greatest catches I have ever seen in 50 years in this game. Alexei! Yes!
3: Yes! 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 Yes!
1: History!
0: HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio, our first show of 2015. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time for our regular commentaries. Ron Chandler is on deck with Master Notes. And to start us off, it's the Minor League Minute with BaseballHQ.com Minor League's analyst Rob Gordon looking at Los Angeles Dodgers outfield prospect Jock Peterson.
1: The Los Angeles Dodgers' Jock Peterson had a monster season in 2014, hitting 303 with a .435 on-base percentage and a very impressive .582 slugging percentage, en route to becoming the 1st 30 .30-30 player in the Pacific Coast League since 1934. Peterson has excellent across-the-board tools, with plus raw power and speed being the ones that stand out the most. Peterson also has a very discerning eye at the plate and walked in 18% of his at-bats in 2014, but some of that is likely attributable to pitchers in the Pacific Coast League refusing to challenge him. Peterson struggled in his brief stint with the Dodgers hitting just 143 and 38 at-bats, and there is definitely some swing and miss to his game. But the recent trade of Matt Kemp seems to pave the way for Peterson to win the starting center field job in Los Angeles this coming spring. Peterson will have to make some important adjustments at the plate, or Major League pitchers will exploit his natural aggressiveness. But even if he struggles to hit for average to start the year, his package of power and speed has plenty of value in NL-only formats. In time, Jock Peterson has the potential to become a fantasy stud, but keep your expectations realistic for 2015. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Corden.
0: Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long and in the preseason, Baseball HQ has reports and updates on the top prospects, organizations, all their moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. Now it's time for Master Notes, a weekly comment on baseball and fantasy baseball. And with a look at why not to take a pitcher in the first
4: round, not even Clayton Kershaw, here's Ron Chandler. It's only January, but I've already had my first draft of the season. I've already prepared that first cheat sheet, settled on my first strategies, and written my first post-mortem. I remain forever entranced by the average draft position rankings from those first mock drafts of the young year. And there he is again, that one player, a man among boys, clocking in at number three on that ADP list. He's going as high as number two, but no lower than ninth, Clayton Kershaw. And look there! Joining him in the first round is King Felix Hernandez. His ADP is number 9, and he is going anywhere from 7th to 17th. And I have to shake my head. As most folks know, I would never draft a pitcher in the first round. I would never pay $30 for a pitcher in an auction league. I just won't do it. Sure, there are arguments for settling your pitching foundation with a Kershaw right up front. His numbers are so far ahead of other pitchers. His mega-innings give your ratio categories an immediate foothold. For me, the biggest advantage is that he gives you more license to make mistakes later. He's your insurance policy for when you find yourself stuck with Brett Oberholzer in the endgame. But these days, it's pretty tough to make mistakes with pitching. Last year, there were enough starting pitchers with an ERA under 3.50 to stock a 12-team league four deep. That means you could set more than half of your starting rotation with solid arms just by coughing in the right direction. During the season, surprise superstars came out of the woodwork every time you turn around. Colin McHugh, Matt Shoemaker, Jacob deGrom. It's the basic economic theory of supply and demand. When supply goes up, prices come down. You can't walk ten feet without tripping over a rostrable pitcher So there is no need to pay the big bucks or high draft picks, even for a Kershaw or Felix. The biggest factor for me is that ratio categories can be managed throughout the draft and during the season, but you have to accumulate your counting stats early. And batters contribute to upwards of four categories, while starting pitches contribute to just two. And wins? Well, Cole Hamels might have something to say about that. When you draft a Kershaw or Felix in the first round, you give up the opportunity to roster one of the game's top producers of home runs, RBIs, runs, and possibly stolen bases. Those are stats that are tough to get back, and you simply don't have to make that sacrifice. Let's look. Draft Kershaw in the first round, and you potentially get about 230 innings and 230 strikeouts. Probably 18-20 to wins, maybe he'll give you a sub-2 ERA and a sub-1 whip again, but a more prudent projection might round that up to a 2 ERA and a 1 whip. Let's say you pass on that first-round pitcher and wait to draft one in the fourth round. Current ADPs say that the pitchers who would be available include Johnny Cueto, Hugh Darvish, Adam Wainwright, Zach Greinke. What would you be losing by waiting until then? Uh, perhaps 20 to 25 innings, 20 to 25 strikeouts, an ERA about a half to three-quarters of a run, a whip of maybe .1, a little higher in Granky's case. Over the course of six months, those numbers are pretty much statistical noise. Focusing on peripherals and drafting a Granky over, say, uh, Hisashi Iwakuma, they're both $21 pitchers, that immediately makes up the ground in strikeouts. Pair Granke with one of the 100k closers, Kimbrell, Chapman, Holland, Jansen, who are going as late as round five or six, you won't miss Kershaw at all. And you can stock up on those ever-dwindling batting stats in rounds one, two, and three. This advice is always held for me, but these days it is even more prevalent. Good pitchers can be found anywhere. Good hitters? Not so much. It's simple supply and demand. When you're inundated in solid arms, you don't need to pay a premium for any one of them. Even Clayton Kershaw. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ron Chandler of BaseballHQ.com.
0: Ron Chandler is the founder of BaseballHQ.com and a member of the Master Notes rotation here at Baseball HQ Radio. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every time. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, January 23rd. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number one of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our League Watch News analysts were Harold Nichols and Todd Zola, pinch hitting for Jock Thompson. And our Friday Talk with Todd correspondent was Todd Zola as well, doing double duty this week. Our Minor League Minute commentator was BaseballHQ.com Minor leagues Analyst Rob Gordon and our Master Notes commentator, BaseballHQ.com founder, Ron Chandler. I'm Patrick Davitt. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also remember, you can check out BaseballHQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. But please, more importantly, tell your friends about BaseballHQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again soon with another edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive
4: of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the
0: USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.